In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. God willing, today we're going to continue what we began last time, um, speaking about some of the lessons from the life uh, of Job. Um, just to uh, recap what we've talked about already, um, we said that uh, Satan is subject to God. Well, the first lesson we learned about, that um, Satan can't do anything apart from God's permission. Um, also, we said that bad things happen to good people, even though Job was, Job was a righteous man, and yet all of these things happened to him. There was, a, there was a greater purpose to it. It wasn't because God was punishing Job, and also at the same time, it's not the case that simply because someone is a good and righteous person that God is going to shield them from whatever calamity might happen to them in their life. Like there's a greater purpose, there's a greater plan beyond just kind of maybe what's obvious to us. The third lesson was um, in the midst of suffering, we should maintain hope in God, and certainly Job did. Um, there was really not any time um, in, in Job's um, trial where he doubted God, he remained faithful um, to the end. Um, our friends may fail us, but God never does. The Job's three friends that tried to comfort him um, were just making things worse. Um, his wife also was making things worse. Um, nobody could have any explanation or understanding of what was happening. Um, and instead of just um, ha asking Job or encouraging Job to keep his trust in God, um, they all tried to give their own explanations, um, which didn't end up helping Job at all. Um, even in the midst of God's silence, his presence is with us. So even though uh, everything was silent, like God, God was not speaking, to Job during this time, like there is no explanation. God did not come and, and tell him why anything was happening, and yet God remained with him to the end, and God's purpose was fulfilled in the end. So those are the five um, lessons that we spoke about last time. So we're going to continue. Uh, the sixth lesson that we learn is that wisdom comes from fearing God and turning away from evil. Um, so sometimes um, in the midst of trial, the thing that we benefit from the most is a breaking of our pride, uh, the breaking of our strength, the breaking of our understanding that we can conquer anything, that we can do everything. Of course, in the world, we are always given this message that, you know, if you put your mind to something, you can accomplish it, you can do it. And definitely there is some truth in that, like the goal of that would be to say, well, don't give up, keep trying. And that's true. I mean, we shouldn't give up. We should keep trying to attain uh, our goals. And the people who try um, without giving up can be more successful than those who give up or those who are lazy um, and so on. But we shouldn't uh, discount the idea that not every desire of man is the will of God. Not everything that we desire is good for us. And if God stands in our way from accomplishing something, um, we have to, you know, question, like, are the, are the setbacks that I'm facing, are they because um, I just need to keep persevering and trying? Or, or are the setbacks that I'm facing because God is sending me a message saying, I don't want you to go down this path. Um, I have another path that I have prepared for you. And maybe you need to wait in order to see it, in order to live it, in, in order for it to manifest. But the path that you have chosen is not the, is not the right one. For instance, um, when... When King David uh, wanted to build the temple, he began the preparations. He, he thought of all the materials that he would need to have, and he wanted to build it because out of his love for God. I mean, anyone looking at him would say he has a good purpose. Uh, he has, you know, uh, uh, a good desire, something that he wants to do. But it was God's will that the temple be built. 
in, in the life of his son, King Solomon, and not in the life of King David. And so God told him explicitly, no, I don't want you to build a temple. Um, you, you know, you're, you're a man of war, like, like your whole life has been characterized by war and fighting. I want the temple to be built um, in, under the reign of a king who, 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 who does not war, right? Who is just in peacetime. And certainly King Solomon was a symbol of Christ um, because he did not have wars during the time. His, his reign was a very peaceful reign. So that was God's wisdom, God's, you know, God, God's economy was that he wanted the temple built at a different time. So as much as King David maybe would have wanted um, to build a temple, and again, nobody could point to his desire as being a selfish one. Nobody could point to it as being evil in any way. Um, but God said, no, I don't want this. So just because we want something, even if it looks like from the outside as being very good and even godly, and even that we are doing it for the sake of God, it doesn't mean that this is the will of God, right? So... Um, Sometimes in our pride, we, 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 we put in our minds something that we want or something we have declared ourselves to be good, something we declared that we must have or must accomplish, and I'm willing to do anything, even to transgress God's commandments in order to attain it, right? And we convince ourselves that this is good because the, the goal is good, right? The goal is good. So, so I, I, I will do anything. I'll do anything to achieve it. But in trials like this, it breaks us. It, it makes us feel like, you know, I'm not really as much in control as I think. As much as we believe that we have control of our lives, that, that our future and our destiny is something that is in our hands, sometimes we forget that God has a big say in this, that God created us for a purpose and there is a path that God wants us to walk. So um, trials like this in, in the life of Job would make Job see how small he was. You know, he was not powerful. He was very weak. Actually, what are we like dust? Like in the in the eyes of God, what are we? We have no power at all. You know, I like to think of the example of ants. You know, like what is an ant to a human? Like how 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 glorious does an ant think that it is? How much power? You know, when the ant compares itself with the other ants and says, "I'm the best ant," it's like, okay, maybe you're the best ant, but you're nothing. Like like I can squash you just so easily. You know, without without any effort, right? And so. When, it, when, when something that is that minuscule and small thinks that it has that much power and control, we forget that we are like so small, like in, in, in the hands of God. So we grow in humility through trial, and in humility, we learn to say, thy will be done, right? Thy will be done, meaning I'll go wherever you lead me. I don't even trust in my own desires. I don't even trust that my own desires are telling me the truth. Again, my desires are telling me that something is good. Maybe it's not good. Maybe I will never understand why it's not good. Maybe I will never perceive anything about it. And I'll, I'll, I'll feel in my heart like I really, really, really wish, I yearn to have this thing or to accomplish this goal that I have. And God said no to it. I have no explanation. I, 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 can't, I can't say why, right? But this is what God has said. In trial, we learn to submit, right? We learn to submit. Um, our will and to grow in wisdom this wisdom this discernment that I'm speaking about is that we don't do this um, Grumbling we don't do it in complaining, but we do it truly with a sense of submission and surrender I believe that what God is allowing for me in my life is good Even if it makes no sense even if it's not what I desire even if I've prayed and prayed and prayed about it Forever and God still says no. I still trust that whatever he is doing um, is good in Job 28, it says, and, and to man he said, Behold the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. 
even while we are in this phase of life where we are maybe wanting something that God has denied, that he has said no to, um, that we have not received, this is actually the time where maybe we are the most likely to rebel against God, the most likely to be angry at him, the most likely to be resentful toward him. Because we know that he has the power to grant us our desire. And the only conclusion we come to is God has chosen no, and maybe we, we begin to think, well, God is not loving. He is not good. Well, if he loved me, then he would grant it to me. Why is he not granting it to me if it's something so important to me? And this is when the idea of rebellion and, and sin and, and, and warring against God, even in our thoughts or in our feelings, begins to become uh, a temptation. And certainly in the life of Job, he would have had this temptation. He would have had this temptation to, to hate God for all that God has allowed, right? All that God has allowed. He's allowed him to lose all his family. He's allowed him to lose all his possessions. He's allowed him to lose his health. What was left in the name, you know, in Job's name after all of that trial was done? His life was devastated. How easy it would have been for him to grumble. If you look at the example of someone like Joseph the Righteous after the ordeal that he went through, after he was thrown into a pit by his brothers and sold as a slave and in prison, right? And even when he was tempted with sin, right, which would have been some kind of comfort or relief to him during his time of trial when Potiphar's wife was trying to seduce him, he could have, he could have accepted it. He could have said, you know what, who am I to resist this? Who am I to say no to this? Like, I'm a victim of all that has happened to me. And maybe this will be some kind of a comfort or consolation in the midst of all of the trial that I face. But his response was, how could I do this great wickedness in the sight of God? Like, even then... While he was in the midst of that trial, his, his focus was, I want to be righteous. I want to do what is good. I will turn away from evil. I will flee from it. I don't see God as the source of my suffering. I don't see God as the one who caused me pain. No, God allowed it for a reason. Who's the one who caused me pain? Well, my brothers, they are the ones who threw me into the pit. Uh, Potiphar is the one who bought me as a slave. All of the people around me are the ones who are doing wickedness. It's not God who's doing wickedness. God is not stopping them from their desire. But he is twisting and turning their, their goals, their desires into ultimately something good. And we know, of course, in the life of Joseph, he became the ruler of Egypt. So even though the trial was very difficult, but because Joseph was faithful to God throughout, the outcome was great. And the outcome brought glory to Joseph and glory to God. And, 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 and it's a story that we benefit from even today. So we learn submission, surrender, and in wisdom and the fear of God and returning away from evil, we persevere so that God can be glorified in the end and we also will be glorified with him. The seventh lesson is that trials are a good time for repentance. Um, Job, really the only sin that Job committed during this ordeal of his, it was not a sin that was God was punishing him for, and that's why this, this, this trial happened. The only sin that he committed was that of self-righteousness because he refused the idea that it's possible that he had done anything wrong, right? He refused it. You know, St. Paul, when he speaks about himself, he's saying, I know nothing against myself, but I'm not satisfied with this because maybe there is a sin that I've committed against God and I'm not aware of it. You know, when, when, when Job would offer his prayers to God, he would do so on behalf of his children. It's like, in case my children have committed any sin, I, 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 am, I am asking God, I'm offering to God on their behalf. He saw himself as being a righteous man. 
He indeed was a righteous man, and the Bible doesn't record any sin that he committed, but he was so confident in his own righteousness, and to say that there is no way that I have committed any sin, there is no way that I have done anything wrong, that God would punish me, all of this. And even though he was right, that God was not punishing him because of his sin, but he, his, his thought process was wrong. The way he was thinking was wrong. He didn't even consider that that was a possibility. And so this is why toward the end of his trial in Job 42, after the trial had ended, he says, what well, therefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. So trials are a good opportunity for us to repent. A lot of times the reason is because in the midst of trial is when we feel the most in need. We feel the most in need of God. We feel the most in need because we cannot survive without him. We feel like the trial is too strong, it's too um, powerful, it's too overwhelming. The challenge is beyond my ability to, 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 to fight against it. And without God's presence, without God's help, I will fall. And so when we are faced with such a trial and such a challenge, um, we need God more than ever. We need God to be with us more than ever. And, and in that moment where we're calling out to God, we realize, well, maybe um, for me to be closer to God, for me to, to, to draw closer to Him and allow Him closer to me, there are some sins in my life. There are sins that um, I am perpetually committing. There are things that I have not repented of. There are, there are certain lifestyles that I don't want to change. There are certain things that I, brings me comfort that I want to keep because these things are my source of comfort instead of God himself being my source of comfort. So if I'm in the midst of this trial and I am suffering and I'm seeking God's help, this is the time to repent. This is the time to tell God, forgive me for all the sins that I committed. I need you more than ever now. You know, I need you more than ever. I want you to be with me. Like when the, the, the apostles were in the boat with the Lord and the Lord was sleeping uh, and they were in the midst of a storm and they felt like they were going to perish. Like, what did they do? They woke up Christ, and they said, don't you see? How are you sleeping? We're going to perish. And if then at that point, the Lord rebukes the wind and the waves, and everything is silent, and the storm ceases, right? We need to call out to Christ in that moment. He says, like, answer me. Like, respond to me. And maybe sometimes the reason that God does not respond as soon as we would like is because we are living a life that is not pleasing to him. There is some sins that maybe we are indulging in, and those sins are what is keeping us from growing in him. Um, so, so trials are definitely a good time to repent, right? And one of the reasons that God allows the trial is because maybe when everything is going fine, we're not taking this seriously. We're not taking our sins seriously. We're kind of living in our comfort zone and everything is going fine, right? But in the moment of trial, when we really are desperate, in that time is when we begin to turn to God. Maybe my prayer life is very weak, if I have one at all. But in the midst of the trial is the first time that I turn to God really in prayer, or really my fasting. Even if I fasted before, somehow in the midst of trial, fasting takes on a new dimension, a new feeling toward it. It's like really coming from my heart, um, something that maybe I've been doing my whole life, but I did it very lukewarm. I did it very superficially. I did it without really any purpose. Whereas now in the midst of trial, my fasting is really like begging, God for his mercy in the midst of trial. So trials are definitely um, a good time for, to repent, and we see this also in the life of Job. The eighth lesson we learn is sometimes our attempt to comfort, the, comfort others are more of a burden than a help. Sometimes our attempts to comfort others are more a burden than a help. 
Job's friends, um, you know, were not comforting to Job. Uh, Job's friends gave very poor advice. Job's friends didn't even understand God and what is it that he was doing in the life of Job because they kept telling him, um, the reason God is punishing you this way is because of your sin. And that's the thing that they kept saying over and over and over. Pretty much the entire book is them talking to Job about how um, his sin is the reason why God is allowing all of this to happen to him. Um, and in the end, when God began to speak, you can see what God said about his friends and their, their advice. He said, my wrath is aroused against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Like they spent that whole time in ignorance speaking about God and thinking they understand the way that he operates, but he wasn't, they were completely wrong, you know? And so sometimes whether we are the one suffering or maybe a friend is suffering and we are giving them advice or we are receiving advice, we have to be very careful that we don't say things that are false. Sometimes we say things that are false because we think that those things are actually going to be comforting. You know, like, like, like we, we say things with ignorance. We say things with, without, without, without understanding just because we want the people to feel better. And yes, maybe our, our desire or our goal is good. We want to offer consolation to people. But if we're speaking something that is false or something that we do not know, are we actually helping? You know, are we actually helping anyone to feel better just because we are saying words? Um, uh, so whether we are blaming someone or whether we are trying to invent reasons, you know, like one of the hardest tragedies is like when a person dies and we are trying to console the, the loved ones of that person. What do we say to them? You know, we make up reasons like why is it that this person died? I don't know. I don't know why they died. Like, I don't have a reason. I can't give you a reason. I can't. I'm not going to invent a reason and say to you that I know or I think that I know why God allowed such tragedy, right? The world is full of tragedy, right? That's the reason I would say the world is full of tragedy. Not everything is understandable by us. God knows. Like, God knows why it was the time of this person, but I don't know, and I will never know, right? The, 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 the lesson that we learn from Job is how to trust God even when we don't know. You know, like even by the end of the book, there was no time where we, we see that God revealed to Job why anything like this happened. There was no time where God said, you know, let me tell you what happened. Satan came and he told me, uh, you know, and I talked to him and this conversation and then we said, and then this happened and this is why we did it. Nothing. Like we know this now reading it. But Job, throughout all of this trial, God never told him what is it that was happening, right? So sometimes because we don't have an answer, we try to invent answers. And I think this is dangerous because we can invent things that are false. We can put words in the mouth of God that are, are not really his own words. We can try to give consolation that it's not ours to give. The lesson that we learn here is trust God even when you don't know. Like, trust God even though there is no answer. Trust God even though um, you can have no explanation whatsoever for why anything has of this, these tragedies has happened. And in the end, we know that the world is corrupted, and we know that death is everywhere in the world, and pain is everywhere in the world. And yes, we want to make sense of it. We want to make sense of it. But maybe sometimes God is the only one who knows the sense. He's the only one who knows the reason, and he won't reveal it to us right we go through the world's like suffering and god says just trust me 
Just, just trust me. You don't need to understand. You don't need to know. Trust me that I know what I'm doing. Trust me that I know what I'm doing. Um, and sometimes we'll maybe find the answer, but it'll be much, 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 much later, right? And we'll suffer for a long time. Like I always think about the story of the man born blind whenever the disciples asked the Lord, who sinned, this man or his parents, they would be born blind. Look at the ignorance in that question, right? The ignorance in the question. First of all, um, his parents sinned, right? So you're saying that this child was born blind and lived blind his entire life as a punishment because of the sin of his parents. Christ said, no, that's not the reason. What about the man himself? How could is it that the man sinned so that he would be born blind? He committed a sin before he was born so that he could be born this way? It's an ignorant question, right? It's, it's a reflecting of a wrong perception about God, right? And so, but that, that they couldn't find any other explanation. It had to be a punishment of some way. No, they couldn't comprehend that it was possible that a person could be born blind and suffer in this way unless it was a direct consequence of someone's sin, right? And this is one of the lessons that we learn is no tragedy happens. Ecclesiastes says the rain falls on the righteous and the wicked. It's not just the wicked. It's not that God shields the righteous from suffering. No, the, the difference between the righteous and the wicked is that the righteous has eternal life and eternal joy in heaven and not the wicked. But the differentiation is not here. It's not here on the earth. The difference is not here between the righteous and the wicked um, on the earth. So, so then when Christ gave the answer, he says, no, it's not because his parents sin. It's not because it's he sin. It's, be it's because God will be glorified in him. God will be glorified. How? Because of this miracle that I'm about to do. I'm about to heal him from his blindness. He, he, he remained blind his entire life for this moment so he could glorify God in it. Could he have ever even imagined? Imagine all the times that this man asked himself the question, why did God allow me to be born this way? Why did God allow me to be blind? He lived his whole life like this. Why did God not allow me to be like other people? Could he ever have imagined it was going to be because a day will come where Christ will heal him and that, and that all of this was to glorify God? Probably not. Definitely not. Right? And yet that was the reason. Sometimes our problem, though, is that even when we know that the reason is, is to glorify God, we reject it. It's like, you know what? I don't want to glorify you. I, I just want to see. I, I'm not, I don't care to glorify you. I just want to be able to see. And maybe this is also reflecting of a wrong attitude, like when he spoke about humility, right? Like, do I allow myself to be a vessel? Do I allow myself to be a vessel in the hands of the potter to make me into what he wants me to be? Does he choose to be glorified in my suffering? Then I would say, yes, God, allow me to suffer. In that sense, I'm saying that God's glory is more important than my comfort, right? But oftentimes we do the reverse. Say, so my comfort is more important than God's glory. Meaning, meaning I'm not going to like, I'm not going to like care at all whether God is glorified or not. What I care is to get what I want, right? In the end. So sometimes our attempts to comfort others are more of a burden uh, than a help. Um, nine is after the trial comes comfort. After the trial comes comfort. Um, in the book of Tobit, there is this young man, Tobias, uh, and a woman, his name is Sarah, and they were both praying at the same time, right? And um, Sarah's problem was that whenever she would marry a husband, this demon would come and kill her husband. And she had seven husbands this way, and every time she would, before the marriage could be consummated, the demon would come and kill her husband. And so she had this reputation that 
pretty much any man who approaches her is killed. Okay, um, and so there was one day where she was in her house, and there was this maid servant in her house, and she said this comment to her, essentially insulting her and mocking her um, because of because of this situation. And Sarah was very very distraught and upset. Okay, and so she's praying and asking God for mercy. Okay, and so she says this. She said, "But all who worship you are certain of this." That one's life, if it should be tested, shall be crowned, and if it should be in tribulation, shall be delivered, and if it should be corrected, shall be permitted to approach your mercy. For you are not delighted with our perdition, for after a storm you create tranquility, and after tears and weeping you pour out exultation. Meaning God knows that we cannot endure the trial forever. No one can endure a trial forever, right? Sometimes, though, the trial will last to the end of our life. Right? Sometimes it will last to the end of our life, but that's still not forever. Maybe we feel it's forever. You know, we, when we think about our life, we consider that almost to be like eternity, like all of existence is our life. And so the idea of having a pain or suffering that will not be taken from us for the rest of our life is very difficult, and it definitely is difficult. But there will always be a comfort. Whether the trial ends in the world and God grants us comfort after it, that the trial is over, or whether the trial does let end, uh, end at the end of my life, when now I am go to a place where I do not suffer or struggle with it anymore, there is always comfort. And one of the things that strengthens us and encourages us in the midst of trial is that it has an end. And if you ask a person in the midst of like the hottest part of the trial, you know, do you believe that this trial has an end? Maybe we'll say no. I don't. I don't think it'll ever end. I think this is going to last forever because that's how we feel, like in the pain in the bowen. We feel like it will last forever. Um, Job, if you would have asked him, do you think this trial will end? I don't know what he would have said, but it would have been very hard to imagine the outcome in that moment. Like w w it would hard be hard for him to imagine that he was going to be restored to health, that he was going to have more children, that his possessions will be returned. Like all of those things that happen at the end is very difficult for him in the middle of the trial to imagine it. And yet that's what happened. And if you think about even in our own lives, some of the most difficult trials that we've had in our past that have ended, it's an example to us. You know, if, if, if all the trials that, or many of the trials that we've had have ended, maybe God will grant us also that the trials we face today will end. But definitely, at the end of our life, God has offered us um, complete freedom from suffering, right? Where there is no more pain at all. So that's the ninth thing that we learn. The last thing is that trials allow us to see God clearly, right? This famous verse that Job said in Job 42, he said, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Whatever Job knew about God before this trial was one thing. He heard of him by the hearing of the ear. He had a knowledge of God. But now, having gone through the trial, he says, now my eye sees you. Like, I see you more clearly now after the trial than I did before the trial. And maybe this was the greatest benefit out of everything that happened to him, is his, his understanding of God, his vision of God, his knowledge of God, his experience with God, all of this is now at a different level than it was before. The faith that he has now is greater than the faith he had before. And there was no other way to produce this faith. You know, you don't produce this faith by reading books. You don't produce this faith by listening to sermons. You don't, you don't, you don't get to this level of faith until you're tested. And when you're tested, that's when it pushes you and drives you to seek God in new ways that maybe we never tried to see or experience before because we never felt the need and now we feel the need 
And when we turn to God out of desperation, right, that's really when we begin to see God working in ways that we never expected or never knew was possible. He, he touches our life in a way that is, you know, maybe beyond what we've ever experienced um, before. So I, finally, I just wanted to read this sh excerpt from the Sermon on the Mount in conclusion. So he says, this is Christ speaking. He says, therefore, I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? So why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, and yet I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he m not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. The message is, if we can accept it, is so simple. It's so simple, it's frustratingly simple. It's just saying, worry about righteousness. Worry about the kingdom of God, and God will give you everything else. Like, without worrying about it. Like, we worry about so many things. Saying, all you have to do is be obedient to God and submit to Him and try to live a righteous life, and God will give you everything else. And you never have to worry about any of that. It's so simple. It's such a simple message. Like, if we can accept it, it's so simple. And it's so delightful. And it's so comforting to say, I never have to worry about missing opportunities. I never have to worry about... Um, how am I going to get out of a, a situation? I never have to worry about some trial and, and, and is it going to destroy me or not? I never have to worry about anything, right? And if someone truly was able to live this as, as Christ says, they would never feel any stress. They would just be joyful and contented all the time. And they would, their, their whole focus is, I want to be a righteous person. I want to pray. I want to fast. I want to be obedient to God. I want to serve God. And I trust that everything else, God is going to take care of it in my life. I don't have to have to worry about it again. So really, if we could do this, if we, if we make an effort to do this and we try to succeed in this, I think for all of us, our lives would be transformed and we would never have to worry about a trial. We never have to worry about anything. Regardless of what is happening to us, we trust that God knows what he's doing, that God is caring and loving to us and will grant us everything in due time. And glory be to God forever. Amen. Does anyone have any comments or questions? and pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day. We ask, O God, for your guidance and your support in the midst of all the trials that we face. And we ask, O God, that you help us to see the example of how you worked with your servant Job and how you remained faithful to him even through the most difficult of times. We thank you, O Lord, for your mercy and your goodness. We ask, O God, that you keep us safe from temptation and you allow us to grow closer to you even in the midst of trial for it to be a time of, of rejuvenation and refreshing of our spirit and a time of repentance and contentment and joy. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints, 
Hear us as we pray, thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The love of God the Father, the grace of the only begotten Son, our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, the communion, the gift of the Holy Spirit, be with you all. Go in peace. The peace of the Lord be with you all. Amen.